Please open your Bible to John chapter 11. If you're using the church Bible, that's on page 1066. In the opening of uh, John's Gospel, as we've just heard a moment ago, John describes Jesus as the Son of God sent into the world. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the story we're about to read, we see a picture of the light of the world shining in the midst of darkness as the Son of God goes to a funeral of a dear friend. In this story, we are given, as Christians, permission to grieve and to doubt, but we're also given reason for hope beyond our grief and our doubts. Listen as I read John chapter 11. I'm going to read verse 1 all the way through 44. Uh, It's a big chunk, but I uh, felt like for these reflections from John, it's good to take a big chunk of scripture and, and hear that. Give your attention now to the reading of God's word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Martha who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is God's word. Some of us uh, in the chapel have been to funerals even in the last several weeks. For others, uh, we lost loved ones perhaps even years ago, and yet their absence still, still is very much felt. The wounds of death are fresh. I think apart from maybe the very youngest of us, we all know what it is to grieve and to carry loss, to encounter death. There's a lot going on in this passage. Uh, perhaps it's more than I should have taken in one go, but here's what I want to focus on this morning, two truths. First, Jesus feels the pain of death. Second, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. First, Jesus feels the pain of death. Jesus feels the pain of death. I don't mean by that on the cross he experiences pain leading up to the moment of his death. Of course, that's true, but that's not the point here in this passage. What I mean is that Jesus feels the pain and the sorrow and the grief and the heartache and the bitterness and anger that come at the death of a loved one. Death brings real pain and sorrow, and we're not called as Christians to deny that fact. 
It's interesting to notice how different people grieve. Some people get very businesslike. Okay, here's what we need to get done. Here's the matters that need attended to. Others have emotions that almost feel inappropriate given the occasion. In this story, we see a variety of responses to Lazarus' death. There is weeping. There's consoling. There's regret. Both sisters say, if only you had been here, he would still be alive. If things had been different, our brother would still be here. There's even hints of anger. Some of the crowds from Jerusalem say, couldn't this guy who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept Lazarus from dying? It's a bit, uh, you know, we have these sorts of emotions as well. God, surely you could have stopped this person from dying. There is hope. Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. We don't really know a lot about Mary and Martha and Lazarus's family. Uh, it's interesting to ponder. There's another story about them in Luke chapter 10, and it's interesting how the two sisters' characteristics seem consistent across those two stories. It really, uh, they're real flesh and blood people. But they do seem to be well known in the larger Jerusalem community. So their town is about two miles outside of Jerusalem, and yet we're told that large crowds came down to grieve with them. But it's not just Mary and Martha and large crowds that grieve the death of Lazarus. Jesus, too, feels the pain of death. I think sometimes we can imagine Jesus as sort of being above it all, untouched by the cares and concerns of ordinary human life, unmarked by the pain and sorrow of loss. But that is not the picture John paints for us. One of the interesting things about Mary and Martha and Lazarus' families, we're told that Jesus loves them. They're not part of the 12 disciples or the larger group that travels around with Jesus. We don't even know exactly how they became friends, but it seems that these are the people who Jesus hangs out with when he needs to get away from the crowds, when he needs to rest. These are his friends that he feels recharged by being around. He loves these people. It is true that even in this chapter, Jesus speaks about Lazarus' illness and death in a way that accepts that it is part of God's larger plan. So he says, this illness does not lead to death, but rather to the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But Jesus' confidence in God's plan and that God will be glorified in the midst of this situation doesn't mean that he's immune from feeling the pain of Lazarus' death. In verse 33, John tells us that when Jesus sees Mary at his feet weeping, and he sees all the Jews gathered around also weeping, that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That translation is actually a bit colorless. This word greatly troubled that's here in verse 33, and then again in verse 38, we're told he's deeply moved when he comes to the grave. Uh, in other instances, this word means anger, indignation, even outrage. Why is Jesus indignant? Certainly not because Mary and Martha are grieving. He himself, in verse 35, weeps. That's not inappropriate. That's not what he's upset about. He's indignant at the mere fact of death itself. This 
is not the way it should be. And there's a response of outrage to that. This is not the way it should be. Death interrupts life. It's as if the fabric of reality has been torn and now there's an absence when there should be a presence. This is an intrusion into Jesus' Father's good world. And so we see in Jesus' own person that on the one hand, he accepts the death of a loved one as part of God's good plan and understanding that God oversees all of that in his plan that we don't fully understand. And yet at the same time, there is grief and anger and pain. This simply is not the way it should be. They're not mutually exclusive. Those two can go hand in hand. As Christians, we can be faithful and trust in God and believe that there will be a resurrection at the last day and still feel anger and grief and pain at the loss of a loved one. I don't know if you've felt that, this sort of indignation, this sense that someone who's been dead perhaps even years, you think about them, you think this is not how it should be. They should be here at the table with us. They should be here in the pew with us. Jesus himself knows what that is like. He shares our grief. This is a profound theological point, and we need to spend a moment meditating on it because this here gives us reason to believe in the God of the Bible. The Westminster Confession of Faith, one of our doctrinal statements here at Weiser Lake Chapel, says in the second chapter, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Passions is kind of an older word for strong, overwhelming emotions. God is infinite in being and perfection. God is spirit without body, parts, or passions. To simplify a complex issue, the Bible does say God loves and hates. He takes delight in some things. He's angered by other things. But our feelings are just that. We literally feel in our bodies love and hate anger, delight. It's a, it's a bodily thing that we feel. But since God is without body and therefore he is also without passions, okay, he's, he doesn't have this sort of overwhelming experience of emotions we do. Certainly God does love and hate and have anger and delight and all those sorts of things. And, and our emotions mirror God in that sense. And yet we say that he's without passions. He does somehow his godness means his emotions, if we want to call them that, are different than our human emotions. The $100 word for this is God is impassable. The Westminster Confession continues, God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient. God is the fullness of life and glory and goodness and blessedness. And so God's inner life isn't subject to the ups and downs that we all feel. Now, if we left the story there, and certainly I want to affirm you know, Westminster Confession, I'm not questioning that, but if we leave the story there and that's all we say, we're left with a picture of God that is distant. We could get the idea that God is uncaring, disinterested, doesn't really get what life is like for us. But of course, we can't leave the story there. John opens his gospel by telling us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. 
glory as of the only Son from the Father. The incarnation means that the God who in himself is full of life and glory and goodness and is without passions comes to earth and takes flesh so that in the one person of Christ Jesus, fully God and fully man, he experiences what it's like to be human. He has flesh that feels emotion and grief and pain, flesh that can be bruised and bleed and die. So the God who is without passions took a body in the incarnation and so feels the pain of death and weeps at the passing of a dear friend. John 35 is the shortest verse in the Bible. Uh, I know that because I had a teacher in grade school who let you pick your own memory verse, and so that was a perennial favorite, Jesus wept. But we need to be careful not to move too quickly over this short verse. Do you see the profound truth here? That the God who created all things enters into the broken world of pain and sorrow and grief and death and experiences it himself. Jesus wept. Whatever pain or trauma or grief you have been through, here is a God that you can believe in. A God who doesn't sit off at a distance, but condescends to us. A God who comes into our world to know our pain and our grief and our sorrow firsthand. But this raises the question, if Jesus knows the pain and the grief and the anguish of losing a best friend in the middle of life, uh, you know, Jesus is in his early 30s, Lazarus probably the same, then why does he let Lazarus die? That's the question everybody's asking, if only you were here. And several passages actually make this question even more puzzling. Look at verses 4 and 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer where he was. That's certainly not what we expect to find, is it? We expect he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and so when he heard Lazarus was ill, he hurried to Bethany and helped Lazarus. But that's not what he did. He stays two days in the same spot. Verses 14 and 15, we see the same puzzle. Uh, the word order in Greek is even more troubling. Literally, it says, uh, literally, Jesus says to his disciples, Lazarus has died and I am glad. I am glad that I was not there for your sake so that you might believe. What, what a bother thing. You know, why, why would he say this? Lazarus has died and I am glad. Uh, we could imagine a doctor, for example, who's training uh, residents. I guess that's what happens to become a doctor, that they're training residents. And this doctor might say to a resident, you know, hopefully outside of the patient's room, this is a really rare form of cancer, and I'm glad so that you can see how to treat this. The doctor's not saying the cancer in itself is good, but I'm glad that this gives opportunity for you to learn something. There's a larger purpose that gives this cancer meaning. But what is the larger purpose here in John 11? Death seems to be like the worst thing, right? And yet Jesus recognizes that even death is only a symptom. And there's an underlying cause, uh, uh, cause, an underlying condition that needs to be dealt with. What is that underlying condition that leads to death? It is that in our sin and rebellion, we have been separated from the God of life. The God of life, who gives life 
who creates all things. We have turned away from him, and our alienation leads to disintegration. The parts of our life come apart, and ultimately our bodies themselves come apart. That's the underlying condition. Dylan Thomas, in his uh, famous uh, poem, tells us to rage, rage against the dying of the light. I suppose for you or I, it doesn't really make a difference whether we are filled with rage at the moment of death or not. But here in Christ is the one person who can actually do something about death, who is fully God and fully man. Paul tells us in Romans that we've already heard this morning, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus feels the pain of death and the sorrow of death, and that's good news, that it's a God who knows what it's like. But there's even better news, and that's the second truth I want us to see. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Let's focus for a moment on his conversation with Martha in verses 17 through 27. Martha comes out to greet Jesus, and she greets him with a sort of uh, uh, expression of sorrow and faith all mixed together. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Saying, I know that you could have done something. I believe that you have power. And Jesus comforts her. Your brother will rise again. But Martha seems to think this is a sort of like hallmark comfort, hallmark card response. She says, yeah, I know he's going to rise again at the last day. Yeah, I believe in the resurrection, but it still hurts here and now. So Jesus shifts the conversation from abstract questions about the last day to a call to personal belief. The shift that we need to make as well. We can get caught up, if we want, in philosophical debates about the nature of life after death or the conservation of personality or what happens in near-death experiences, all those sorts of things. But Jesus says none of those is the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is not the possibility of life after death, but do you have a relationship with me? Do you have a relationship with me? The fundamental issue is I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Notice Jesus doesn't just offer life and resurrection. He doesn't say, I can give you life. He doesn't say, I can work a miracle and resurrect Lazarus. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the God of life. Come in the flesh. He says, you're united to me through faith, through trusting, through believing that you experience life abundantly and you have hope of the resurrection. He says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. To live in Christ is an inner condition. It means to be renewed. In John 3, Jesus calls us being born again. In John 4, he talks about a spring of living water within us. He calls it the work of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, whoever has that living life in me and whoever believes in me, if they confess that they have this outward stance of trust on Christ Jesus, they will have life. And then he puts the question to Martha, do you believe this? 
And Martha responds with this great confession of faith. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Uh, my mother-in-law used to have a magnet on her fridge that said, more Mary, less Martha. And I, I think that's referring to John, uh, Luke 10, where, where Martha is caught up with all the housework and Mary sits at Jesus' feet. But here, Martha shows her own spiritual vibrancy, making this bold confession. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one who comes to fulfill all of Israel's hopes and expectations. You are the Son of God. The Word become flesh to make the Father known to us. You stand in this unique relationship to God, and you are the one coming into the world to reveal to us what God is like. At the end of John's Gospel, he concludes, these stories are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. The goal of John's gospel is that you and I would make the same confession as Martha, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we would believe in his name, and so have life everlasting. Martha makes a good confession, but we see in this chapter that even believers struggle to believe. Martha has just confessed her, her faith in Christ, that she believes in Jesus, but when it actually comes to the moment and Jesus says, roll away the stone from the tomb, the ever-practical Martha objects, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. The King James is very colorful at this point. Lord, by this time he stinketh. I had a friend in a junior high who had some emus, and one died during the week, and when I went to his house on Saturday, we had to bury it. Uh, and an emu that's been dead four days in the garage, it's a stink, a smell. Uh, this week I had to crawl into my house because we had a rat die under there. There's nothing worse than the smell of death. When it comes to the moment, Mary or Martha rather has doubts. This doesn't mean that her confession is invalid. Even believers struggle to believe. We confess that we trust God. We confess that we believe in Jesus, but when the doctor calls and says, you may want to sit down, we have doubts. When a loved one dies in a tragic accident, we struggle to believe. And yet Jesus reassures Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Then comes the sign itself. John is a gospel full of signs. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and as a sign of that, he fed 5,000 people in the wilderness. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world that shines in the darkness, and as a sign of that, he opened the eyes of a man blind from birth. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and as a sign of that, he calls Lazarus in the tomb, and Lazarus comes out. Jesus shouts with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Of course, death is just the symptom. Lazarus is raised to life, but again, he dies someday. The underlying condition, the spiritual condition, is also a sort of death. That's what Ezekiel said in our, the reading we had earlier this morning. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. And so each of us need to hear the voice of Christ calling out, come out, come out of your death into life. If we keep reading past verse 44, and I know it was already a long reading as it was, the irony is that Jesus giving life to his friend Lazarus 
sets into motion a chain of events that leads to the temple leadership deciding that he must be arrested and ultimately put to death. Jesus gives the gift of life, and it ends up costing him his own life. And it's a picture. It's a picture of what we need. Jesus gives his life to deal with our underlying condition, our alienation from God, our sin. And so we look around the world at the pain and suffering that there is, and we say, God, why? God, why? And yet here is the answer. C.S. Lewis puts it so brilliantly. Um, I know I've used this before, but I think it may actually be one of the best sentences ever written in English. God, who needs nothing, loves into existence holy, superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseeing, or should we say seeing, there are no tenses in God. The buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the mesial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms it is, as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all love. God creates a world that then becomes broken by our sin and is now filled with pain and suffering. And yet God created that world knowing all along that what it meant would be that he has to come into the world himself to feel the pain of death, the sorrow at losing loved ones, the pain of death itself, so that Christ Jesus could say to us, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Christ Jesus, we thank you that you, the word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us to show us the glory of God that you, the incarnate God, went to war with the last enemy, death itself. Every other human who has ever fought this battle has lost, and yet you go to war with death and come out victorious. We thank you then that you proclaim to us that you are the resurrection and the life, and that if we believe in you, that we can follow you in your victory parade into everlasting life. Lord, we ask that you would be at work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts even now. For those who have never put their belief in you, who have never said, I do indeed trust in you as the Christ, the Son of God, by your Holy Spirit, renew their hearts even now that they might believe. Stir them up to put their trust in you. Others of us, Lord, we believe and yet we struggle to believe. As we meditate on your word, as we come to the Lord's table, Use your word and these visible signs you have given us to build up our faith in you. Lord, may we rejoice in the newness of life that you have won for us. Amen.